Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Name Drops, where we curate a mixtape featuring songs that name drop other celebrities. Yeah. It's pretty simple. <laughs> it really is. And there were so, so many to choose from. Yep. Well, happy 4th of July or Independence Day or whatever we call it. Yeah. Yeah. Today, uh, hopefully, you'll give us a listen as you're enjoying your backyard barbecue uh, before tonight's fireworks. Those of you in other countries will will most likely not be celebrating. True. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, we didn't go patriotic this season. We didn't go patriotic last season. I think we, well, we, the first the season, season we did a first Fourth season. of July. Yeah. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, it is Independence Day, so happy Happy Fourth, everybody. Um, yeah, this name dropping mixtape. Um, what I did find interesting is that a majority of my picks are from newer artists. Uh, that's not to say that I don't have the 70s, 80s, and 90s represented, but there are a lot of songs that have come out in the last 10 to 20 years that have really paid reverence to the celebrities that we grew up with and before. Yeah, oh yeah. So um, it's a very eclectic mix. Yeah, I, I, same thing. I, I have some newer tracks as well. I have some pretty obscure tracks. Uh, it was fun um, digging out some obscure stuff. Uh, and my criteria was simple too, just songs that are a tribute to, or at least the focus of, some significant icon of the 20th century. Yeah. And most of them are musical artists. Yeah, most of mine are as well. Um, not all, but most. I um, I do have a couple of surprises because on, on side B, it won't be uh, today's episode, but on side B, I, I played around a little bit with the idea of name drops. So it, it's, I don't know, it might, I might surprise you with a couple of my picks. But on the whole, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. In fact, I found myself really... Having difficulty deciding between a few songs there at the end, my list—I I finally cut it down to about fifteen, and there were th- three songs that I just did not want to let go of, but ended up doing it. Um, yeah, I had to change. I had to change as well. I mean, I had a few songs um, that name dropped just a ton of celebrities, right? But I—I kind of went away from that and just focused on songs that you know highlight one or, or two individuals yeah now i do have one in fact i'm going to lead off with my one pick that does in fact uh name drop a, a number a number of bands and artists and celebrities in general um but for the most part yeah i, I stayed singular uh as well um yeah because at one point i had vogue by madonna because of you know sure, sure, what yeah. she what she does there i there were there were a lot of them um that Name drop a number of, of celebrities, but yeah, like you, I tried to stay stay away from most. The one exception, are we ready to begin? Yeah, let's begin. The one exception is my first song. Uh, unlike the other songs on my list, uh, t- 
this this selection uh, does not focus on one key celebrity. Rather, it name drops an entire year. Ah, yeah, that of was, popular that was culture. one I had originally. Yeah. yeah, it's an entire year of popular culture. A year that included Springsteen and Madonna. This was way before Nirvana. <laughs> a year that featured U2 and Blondie. A year when music was still on MTV. I am referring, of course, to 1985 by Bowling for Soup. Virtual Who's Who, White Snake, Wham, Duran Duran, Van Halen, Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, they all make an appearance in the lyrics to this song. It really is the song that just keeps giving. <laughs> it's a very Gen X oh, song. Absolutely. In yeah. some ways, I don't want to call it a Gen X anthem because it didn't come out during. Sure. Right? It's in reference to the past, but ly- lyrically, it's a Gen X anthem. It, it is. And it sounds very much. I mean, Bowling for Soup, I've, I've always been a fan of Bowling for Soup. I mean, they're. They're pop punk, you know. I, I don't even know that they're still together. I, I don't know. I, they kind of lost, lost uh, any, you know, knowledge of, of them following the the three huge singles that they had in quick succession. But um, they always sounded very '80s to me, honestly. I, I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because of the, you know, the the songs that they sang. But um, yeah, I just I love this song and the video. Do you remember I've the never vid- seen the video. You've never seen the video. Okay. I, well. I, pr- I pretty much stopped watching videos in, okay. in the early 90s, probably. <laughs> That's fair. Um, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit here uh, coming up. Um, I would be curious how many of our listeners know that 1985 was not originally recorded by Bowling for Soup. Yeah, it's a cover. Yep. It is a cover. Yep. It was originally written and recorded by SR71, and both versions of the song do hold a special place in the hearts of pop punk enthusiasts. Um, the original recording, it features a solid vocal performance, uh, delivering the narrative with a touch of angst and rebellion. Um, but in truth, I find the original to be rather sad. I mean, it's, I don't know, when listening to the original version, it becomes very clear to me why Debbie needs that one Prozac a day. Right, right. You know, right. it's just... And yeah, I mean, lyrically on face value, it's a little depressing. It is. It's a very depressing <laughs> song, especially as it was originally recorded. It's, when, it's that point when you realize that you're not going to achieve the, the dreams that you thought you'd achieve as a, as a young person. Exactly, yeah. And I think any Gen Xer listening to, especially the original version, they might wish that they had their own prescription of Prozac <laughs> by, the, by the end of the song. So, so credit Bowling for Soup for injecting some much-needed energy and playfulness because in their hands, the song becomes fun. Yeah, right. Um, the, the original recording, it takes a dig at George Michael's homosexuality. That's dropped from the Bowling for Soup's version. They're also in, uh, it also includes a crass mid-song shout-out 
that kind of explains Debbie's missed opportunities. SR-71 makes it very clear that the rubber broke. Ah. Which Bowling for Soup uh, very wisely <laughs> left out of their, uh, their cover version. Uh, Bowling for Soup lead singer Jarrett Reddick, he dropped those lines, he dropped others, and replaced them with snakeskin miniskirts in Ozzy Osbourne's reality TV series. And the cover version is, it, it's better for it. Uh, Bowling for Soup's uh, cover also takes a few creative liberties with the musical arrangement. They, they add additional harmonies and background vocals. They enhance the depth of the track by doing that. And, and Bowling for Soup's uh, tight instrumentation and precise execution may be more polished, but it's also just more vibrant. It, it taps into a collective sentiment that I think is shared by many who grew up in the 80s and 90s. Uh, the band's infectious energy, it's just an unabashed enthusiasm. And it transports listeners, at least for me, it, it transports me back to that era like we were just talking about. I think it really creates an emotional connection that feels both personal and relatable. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. And, and that's something the original version of the song was sorely lacking. I, um, I remember when the song came out, and was what year, late 90s, early uh, 2000s? came out in 2004. 2004, okay. Yeah. I remember, like, I had a large swath of students that really enjoyed this song and this band. In fact, they played at the Palace Theater at some point. Did they really? Yeah, and a bunch of my students went and, and saw the show. And I remember being encouraged that, you know, yeah, it's pop punk, but at least they were listening to guitar-based music. Right, yeah, no, absolutely. And and they did have the two other big singles. I mean, Girl, All the Bad Guys Want uh, came out first, right. followed by this, and then they had Ohio, which yeah, I, yeah, I yeah, love. Which, love the song Ohio. Yes, um, that, I think that was popular when they played it in Canton. Was it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, Ohio name drops right. numbers. Well, they're all from Texas, of course, but <laughs> right. it, it name drops uh, everybody from Trey, Troy Aikman to, to the Bush Twins. You right, know, so. right. Um, I would be remiss if I did not mention, though, like I said, Bowling for Soup's music video for this. Um, if you've never seen it, you've got to see this, Dave. It was directed by Ryan Smith and Frank Boren, and it features actress Joey House as the now housewife who yearns for the 80s. She resembles actress Tawny Katane a lot. I mean, very, very close, which makes her send-up of White Snake's Here I Go Again video even more fun because she does get on the hood of the car. Okay. I need to look um, this up on YouTube. Yeah, it's it's great. It, the, the video also parodies um, George Michael's Faith, Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love, um, which, for the record, uh, the original White Snake and George Michael videos were actually released in 1987. Uh, Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love was an 85 video release, though. Um, I don't know. I just thought it'd be a fun way to begin, and it is the only one that I chose that is not focused entirely on one major celebrity but it's just uh, we're gen x mixtape and you don't get more gen x than 1985 yeah no definitely and i shouldn't say i stopped watching videos in the early 90s because i remember in the late 90s during the trl revolution uh, yeah. Yeah. coming home after work and trying to stay current for my for my <laughs> students and that's of course when uh when britney spears hit the scene and all that and, oh yeah um, and then I remember too in, in the you know early two thousands when there was a resurgence in, in alternative music. So, um, and that's when I got into the Decembers and so forth. So yeah, you know, um, I still watch videos, but it's not like the old days where oh no, everybody saw all the videos yeah. all the time. Well, MTV would just be on. Right. You know, you'd walk in and out of the room, and you, you played it for background music as well as watching the videos themselves. It was just at least for me, it was just always on. Yep. Which. Uh, Millennials, well, millennials may remember, but Gen Z, you know, um, it really has become an urban legend that MTV once played 
music videos. So and now we have um, MTV Classic and VH1 Classic, and those right. unfortunately they they play two videos, and then it's about ten minutes worth of commercials. Yeah, and so it, it, it it's fun for those to kind of randomly pop up, but it really is irritating because you don't get a lot of music every hour. <laughs> no, you don't. And I mean, you could argue that you can go to YouTube and watch any video at any time, but... that's not. It's fun to let things just pop Exactly. Up. I and mean, that's how we were introduced to so many artists that we otherwise would never have known. Or videos know? that we've completely forgotten about that we wouldn't even think to look up. That's true as well. In fact, it was. I was going through social media last night, and this, this was not... Um, I don't remember when they did this, but Paul Rudd, when he was with Jimmy Fallon, mm -hmm. when they did their send-up of sticks, uh, Too Much Time on My Hands. I don't know Do you, if I've seen that one. You've never seen that. They recreate the video. Okay. <laughs> and it is hilarious. Paul Rudd especially. Just, I mean, I die laughing watching it, but it was on social media as I was right, scrolling through, that, yeah. and I'd forgotten all about it. Yeah, you got to check that out. I always leave here with homework. Yeah, well, I do too. <laughs> That's part of the fun. All right, your All turn. Right. Well, uh, I start off with an odd choice. I'll admit that, but um, but I think it's an important one for a couple of reasons. I started with the miracle of Joey Ramone, 2014, by U2, from the album Songs of Innocence. Wager to guess that a lot of people in our audience haven't heard this song. I had never. Nor have heard this they song. heard the album uh, "Songs of Innocence." Yeah, no, I, I had never heard this before. But even if you haven't heard this song or um, know of this album or haven't listened to this album, you will know the fallout from this record. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, this is the lead track and first single off U2's thirteenth studio album. And we talked about this, I think, a little bit last episode. Uh, there are some bands that reach a point where they know who they are, they're comfortable in their own skin, they don't really branch out and try to experiment, and they still produce really solid music, but it's just not the same music that was um, being produced when that band was quote or quote unquote in their prime. 
you know, we've talked about this with Springsteen and, and even Joel to some extent. I, I loved River of Dreams, the album, you know, but it just didn't have the same whatever <laughs> as, as the earlier stuff. And maybe that's just un, un, unfair and prejudiced on our part because we grew up listening to the early stuff. But, you know, there are other artists like Neil Young. I think Neil Young, even though he still sounds like Neil Young, is continually going through changes and experimenting with different styles and so forth. So he still feels fresh to me. So I don't know if it's just the fact that it's the music we grew up with, because I'd be very willing to hear a new U2 album that feels fresh, if that makes sense. Anyway, um, why did I choose this? Well, first of all, lyrically, it's autobiographical um, in terms of Bono's viewpoint, because when he was a teenager in Ireland, he snuck into a Ramones concert as as a teenager. And as a result, he said, felt less conscious about his voice. And so, and that was kind of what punk did for a lot of these artists that eventually developed into punk and new wave bands, was that at the time, prior to this, so much of the musicianship was top shelf. I mean, when you have Yes and you have all these prog bands that are putting out 14-minute songs and they're virtuosos on their on their instruments and they have incredible voices, it can be very intimidating for a teenager who doesn't have that type of skill. And that's what was great about punk music is you didn't have to have any skill. True. You didn't have to know how to play your instruments. You didn't know sure. how to sing. It was all about the attitude. Yeah, absolutely. And so Bono, having seen Joey live, and of course Joey is the, the exact opposite of everything I just mentioned, right? He's awkward. Uh, he doesn't have a great voice. Uh, but it's Joey Ramone, and the Ramones were such a force, and it worked and just opened everything up. So uh, this is why Bono decides to... Um, to do a tribute song um, to Joey. Musically, uh, the guitars are a little louder and fuzzier than usual, which makes sense since they're writing a tribute uh, for Joey uh, Ramone. Uh, and the Ramones, which you could argue are the, the grandfathers or godfathers, or, or at least the, um, they got the punk ball rolling. Obviously, there were other influences before that, but really the Ramones kind of launched punk rock. Well, yeah, I mean, they were CBGB, you know, mainstays. Right. I, mean, I would argue... Yeah, at least on the American yeah. you know, side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Side, it's yeah they, they, beat, they beat the Britons in this one. Um, not, not that there weren't Britain, British influence. Obviously, the Kinks and the Who and bands like that, I, I think, inspired punk. But it's when the Ramones came over to England and they performed that concert. I forget the exact year. I think it was 76, um, where every British band claims to have uh, been at that show. Um, and that's the show that launched a, a thousand bands. Yeah, you know, I think you're, because yeah. even the Sex Pistols, I think, was '77. Oh, yeah, they claimed to have been at that show as well and really? decided to. Okay. And the Damned. There, there are a bunch of bands that, you know, or members of bands that were at that show. Hmm. And it was it was very similar to what uh, Bono is describing here that that they they went to the show and they all realized, hey, we can go home and do this too. You know, we can go buy a secondhand guitar from the pawn shop. And within a couple of weeks, be doing something very similar to what they saw on stage. And that was very, very inspiring, right? Yeah. Um, to kind of prove how things come full circle, uh, it was reported, uh, I believe it was around 2014, when, when Joey Ramone finally um, passed away from the cancer that he'd been dealing with. And the family announced that Joey was listening to the U2 song in a little while as he passed. Really? Yes. That's pretty cool. And Bono caught wind of this, and during the tour, um, liked to say that only Joy Ramone could take a song about a hangover and make it into a gospel tune. (laughs) And I've always said about U2, if you listen to a U2 song, you can always apply it to 
a girl or to God <laughs> or, <laughs> so or, or, or to something political. Yeah. And that's what I love about you too, because there's, there's that, that vagueness that can be applied to, to different circumstances. And, and so this is a perfect example because it was written as a song about a hangover. But when you listen to it and you think about Joey Ramone passing away, listening to the song, um, you see it in a completely different light. Yeah. And, and it's just really cool that Bono was inspired by Joey and then Joey was inspired by Bono at the end. So. Yeah. And that, and, and that album, that's from the album, um, All That We Can't Leave Behind, which was their last kind of huge commercial album. It's the last time where they kind of steered off in a different direction. And um, just solid album, solid uh, song there. And finally, we need to address the elephant in the room. <laughs> yes, Songs of Innocence is the record that was added free of charge to everyone's iTunes library. And no, you could not delete it. That was the big mistake right there. Instead of viewing the act as a generous gift, millions of millennials suddenly hated the band and have yet to reconcile. Yeah. I, um, and I, I stopped using iTunes prior to, to that happening. Um, I've been pretty loyal to both Amazon Music and uh, Spotify for, for a long time now. But millennials, man, they, there's a lot of hate. <laughs> there is so much hate for you, too. Um, and perhaps that's why I had not heard this right. song. And this was I, their lead single. And that's the thing about some of the later U2 albums in the early 2000s is they kept trying to, to, to chase that hit, right? Uh, they, they got it with Beautiful Day when that came out off of all that we can't... And they had several actual hit commercial singles from that record. Uh, but after that, with Get On Your Boots and The Miracle of Joey Ramone, and, and, which is awkwardly titled, by the way, but... Um, He's never actually mentioned in the song, so I think they thought maybe we should put it in the song title so well, everybody knows who he's talking about. But yeah, that's, um, that, that's, that's the thing. I think U2 has finally figured out that they don't have to be relevant in youth culture anymore, or at least they've given up trying. No. But they tried for, for a very long time. They did, and I, I give them props for that. But, um, you know, they, I don't know, there's a part of me that thinks they should have just celebrated and and just happily you know um taken the the dad rock you know well that's what they're doing anthem. now their, their latest record is actually i think it's 40 different um remixes not remixes rearrangements and re-recordings of their classic um songs uh, going on tour they wanted to kind of mix things up and then it kind of went in a whole different direction and they came up with all these during COVID they came up with all these different arrangements and so they released so in a way they're kind of doing that they're kind of going back and, and celebrating their catalog and re-envisioning their catalog and to show you how time really messes with you okay so um, Boy which was U2's first record came out in 1980 mm -hmm. okay and Octum Baby came out in 91 correct so in the span of 11 years we went from Boy you know, through October and then war and then the big change over to Unforgettable Fire. And then, of course, the Joshua Tree, Right on Hum, and then you get up to Octung Baby. This record, which was their last record, uh, Songs of Innocence. No, I'm sorry. There was Songs of Surrender in 2017, but they're kind of companion albums. So Songs of Innocence came out in 2014, which is, if my math is correct, nine years ago. Right. And I think of this record as having just come out. Right, so it's just it, it is strange when these artists start, you know, like Elton John and the Beatles. I mean, they put out two, three albums a year mm. in a very, oh, yeah. very short period of time, and then you get to a point where they have families and kind of burn out a little bit. And you know, about every five or six years, maybe you'll get a new, 
a new release. But so I consider this new, but it's really not that new. <laughs> I do that all the time, though. And in fact, we've talked about it. You know, I, there's there's a huge part of me that I still think the '80s was 20 years ago. '90s were 10 years. I, I it's like I've I've lost 20 years of the new millennium. Right. I, I just I, I don't know. I think Gen Xers have. I don't think I'm alone right. in, in thinking that way. Anyway, I still like you two. Uh, yeah, some of their newer stuff is a bit stale, but uh, I still love them. And, you know, millennials, maybe someday they'll see the light and put their prejudice aside and realize that it was a bad marketing strategy. And yeah, yeah, Bono's pretty self-absorbed most of the time, or at least that's the character he plays. Um, but that, uh, boy, they put out some really, really good stuff during their time. Yep. Yes, they did. All right. Well, I am next going to introduce a band um, to our listening audience. It's it's a good bet that most of our listeners do not know this band. Um, it, it, the band uh, the band's name is Phoenix, Texas, and actually, I don't even know if that is how you pronounce the band's name. It might be Phoenix, TX. I'm, I'm not really sure. They they formed in 1995 as River Phoenix in Houston, Texas. And River Phoenix was one word, and it was river followed by an F-E-N-I-X. Um, in December of 97, indie label Drive Through released River Phoenix's 13-track full-length eponymous debut, which it was produced by, by Jim Barnes. Uh, within the following year, the album managed to sell out its first three print runs of 5,000 copies each, which was quite an achievement for an independent record label operating out of an owner's garage. Really, yeah, definitely. Uh, the CD's lyrics and melodies they caught the attention of Blink 182's Mark Hoppus, whose sister was at that time dating River Phoenix's guitarist Damon De La Paz. Now, now Hoppus offered the band an opening slot on an upcoming Blink 182 tour, and he eventually became their manager. However, due to the schedule of his own band and the popularity of Blink 182's 1999 album Enema of the State. Uh, Hoppus passed managing duties on to Blink-182's manager, Rick DeVoe. And while River Phoenix's song Speechless was slowly garnering radio play and major labels' attention, Hoppus's effort in promoting River Phoenix was overheard by Blink-182's record label MCA, who showed major interest in signing the band. So, so far, it sounds like they were on their way, right? Two obstacles, however, separated River Phoenix from MCA. First, the band was still under contract with Drive Through Records, who were unwilling to compromise. And additionally, the estate of late actor River Phoenix filed a cease and desist order against the band, uh, barring further usage of the name River Phoenix. Drive Through Records MCA, they, they settled uh, for a distribution agreement, and, and the band discarded the river from their name and appended Texas's postal abbreviation, TX. So, honestly, I don't know if it is, like I said, Phoenix, Texas, or Phoenix, TX. I'm not really sure. Uh, they, they did re-record the majority of their 1997 debut album for their MCA debut, Phoenix, TX. I'm just going to call them TX. And they released it in uh, July of 99. The album debuted at number 115 on the Billboard 200. It reached number three on Billboard's top heat seekers. And the hit single, All My Fault received heavy radio and TV airplay, triggered through the song's integration in the TV movie Jailbait, uh, which even featured a cameo appearance by um, Phoenix TX. It, it really seemed like they were on their way. All My Fault eventually reached number 21 on the Billboard Modern Rock chart. But following the success of their MCA debut, Phoenix TX went on numerous tours, which included the Warp Tour, 
uh, national, international tours with label mates Newfound Glory. And then, in late 2000, drummer Donnie Reyes left the band to pursue other interests. So to compensate, De La Paz took over drumming duties for the band, and a search for a new guitarist commenced. Which takes us to March 2001, when James Love was announced as the replacement guitarist, and the band revealed the name of their follow-up record, Lechuza. Now, Lechuza did not do as well. Um, d- during the first years of their career, Phoenix TX had to struggle hard with their reputation as a Blink-182 ripoff. Uh, several music critics went so far as to refer to their 99 album Phoenix TX as, quote, a very good Blink-182 album. Um, and, and other than the shared musical genre, it was kind of unfair because the two bands had little in common. Uh, due to Phoenix TX's dual guitar employment, they were able to create a more complex guitar accompaniment. And also at a time when Blink-182 relied heavily on rudimentary guitar-based drum arrangement, Phoenix TX made an effort to integrate other instruments. I mean, they would bring in trombone and trumpet, as well as unconventional vocal techniques into their sound. This allowed the band to touch upon other music genres, such as ska punk, hip hop, <laughs> <laughs> hip hop, um, and, and you know you, you could hear that on songs like Skinhead Jesse and Apple Pie Cowboy Toothpaste. Interesting. Yeah, the, the latter includes a rap actually, which originally appeared in the 1984 comedy film Revenge of the Nerds. Hmm. At the very end, when they are performing yeah, on stage, yeah, 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 that's actually integrated into Apple Pie Cowboy Toothpaste. Uh, the typical Phoenix TX song featured an energetic yet pop-friendly distortion, guitar-driven sound, paired with fast-paced but melodic vocal patterns, and a hefty dose of comedy. Um, the more I've looked into these guys, the more I really appreciate them. They're, they're just a lot of fun. I mean, nobody can accuse this pop-punk quartet of lacking a sense of humor. Their their songs are genuinely funny. And if you want a good laugh, check out their Metallica-inspired rocker, Pasture of Muppets. Mm, yeah, that's okay. another one, Anthony. Yeah. Take a look. Uh, they're, they're spot-on harmonies and hyperactive. Pasture of Muppets? Pasture of, instead of Master of Puppets, yeah, it's Pasture of Muppets. Is oh, that's song. brilliant. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's hilarious. Um, and, and yeah, their they're harmonies and, and their guitar-driven sound, it's kind of like equal parts cheap trick and offspring. Huh. I, I really think you'd dig them, yeah. um, honestly. But it was difficult. Here's the problem. It was sometimes impossible to tell the difference between Phoenix TX and a hundred other bands that were on the scene. Right. And along with their sense of humor, they needed a sense of identity, but creative differences within the band forced them to split before that identity came. So, so essentially you're saying they're a lot like Bowling for Soup. Very much, yeah. Uh, very much. In fact, um, I, I very deliberately put the two back to, I, I have no idea how we're going to sequence the final mixtape, of course, but just in my notes, I, I put the two back to back because they, the sound is indistinguishable. I mean, it, it's really, you know, it's the same genre uh, down to the, the backbeat. Um, Lechuza brought some added pressure because they were expected to outsell their MCA drive through Records debut and take their sound to new and exciting directions. So they officially kicked off this era of the band with the single Threesome. It received moderate MTV2 video airplay, I guess, and some success with the Warped Tour crowd. Um, but the problem is, despite great guitar work, solid pop hooks, a fresh sound to go into the album, into this album, uh, Lechuza really did not get the support from the, their, their label. MCA failed to promote the band because reviews kept sliding them for having a sound indistinguishable from other acts. 
so MCA was just kind of letting them die a slow death and, and cutting their losses, I suppose. But all of that history is to bring up this one point. The opening track of Lechuza is proof positive that the band would have thrived had MCA had their label been more supportive. The album opens with my next song selection, which is titled Phoebe Cates. Should have saved that if we ever did a masturbation episode. <laughs> that damn yeah, there are so many. You songs say that and yeah, that's that we could, and that's one we could have saved for that. Anyway, sorry, I don't know where my mind is, but yeah, well, I, the, the I, song. I, any, if you've heard the lyrics to the song, apparently I know where your mind is, but um, you're not wrong. I I just never assumed we would do a masturbation episode. I suppose. I've done Chibop, I touch myself, uh, dancing oh. with myself. I mean, there are a ton of them out there. I'm stunned now. Now I'm thinking that would have been. I don't know great. if there are 24 out of them. Oh, I'm out sure. There. I'm sure there are 20. I'm sure there are far more than 24. <laughs> um, but yeah, Phoebe Cates. It's my second song for today's mixtape. It is a fun and energetic ode to Phoebe Cates. Demonstration. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's no surprises there. Uh, it's not only a great opening track. I mean, it is. It's a solid representation of the band's sound in general. Uh, the guitars are loud, fast, and vibrant. And they contrast well with Will Salazar's upper register harmonies. Uh, Salazar belts out the often ringing melodies with with authority. I mean, it's it's really impressive. And there's some pretty pretty decent drum fills in there. That when you put the mix together, you have the best song that this band ever recorded. Uh, the lyrics off are they offer clever uh, nods, offer clever nods to, to Phoebe Cates' films, of course. Private school, bright lights, big city, paradise. No gremlins. No gremlins. No gremlins. But of course, the focus of the song is yeah, fast, fast times, times at Richmond High. <laughs> um, and fair warning, the track Dave probably has already given you fair warning. The track goes into great detail about her fast times performance. Um, but yeah, had Phoebe Cates been released as a single, I think it would have taken Phoenix TX from mediocre success to stardom. I, I really do. And it is, despite, uh, hopefully we don't offend anybody, but... Um, Too late for that. Yeah, probably. Um, well, Fourth season. I'm sure we've offended everybody at some point. Well, that's the goal. Um, but <laughs> nonetheless, it is just a rocking tune. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it sounds very much like Bowling for Soup. I mean, it, this was, in the, in the early 2000s, 
this was a majority of the bands that were coming out on ind- independent labels. I mean, they all had that pump, uh, that pop punk garage band sound, which is why so many of them died a quick death. Like I said, I don't know the Bowling for Soup is still performing. Yeah. They, they very likely may be. I don't know, but um, yeah, Phoenix TX they they did not last long, and it, it's really a shame. But Phoebe Cates, if you don't know the song, check it out. It is it is just a lot of fun, and I think. It, I think it's fantastic. Well, if we ever do an episode themed as such, um, we'll we'll bring that one out of retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, good, good, good track. I didn't know the band on that one, so interesting. All right, my next pick. Um, it's just weird how I go through these phases, right? Uh, where I kind of focus on an artist for a couple episodes in a row. Um, last episode, we talked about Stevie Wonder with this 1973 song "Higher Ground." I'm going back to the well here of Stevie Wonder, and I'm going with Sir Duke. One of my favorite tunes, by oh, so good! It's fantastic. Came out three years after "Higher Ground," 1976, from uh, what I think is his masterpiece, and that's uh, "Songs in the Key of Life." The song is a tribute to the great Duke Ellington, legendary band leader and jazz musician. Stevie wanted to express his admiration for Ellington and his impact on jazz music. Now, musically, the song is a combination of funk and pop and jazz, uh, but it manages to capture that spirit of the jazz master with its uplifting melody, vibrant horn section, and of course, Stevie plays several instruments on the recording. That's no surprise. But it doesn't just, it's focused on Duke Ellington, but it also is a tribute to other artists of the era mm-hmm. in the jazz era. Yeah, he name drops quite a few. Like Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie, and so forth. The song went to number one on Billboard, and it won two Grammys in 1977, including Best Pop Vocal Performance. And it, it, it's one of those earworms, I call it a friendly earworm. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, it gets stuck in your mind, but it's one of those songs that you don't care. I literally think I could just listen to this over and over again for hours and still be having a good time. Oh, yeah. Well, everything from that album. I mean, Songs in the Key of Life, it's just it, it's one of those rare masterpieces that I think... I, I, I've never met anyone who does not... I've never met any, anyone that does not like Stevie Wonder. But um, those that really know his music, I mean, Songs in the Key of Life, that's, that's the album. Right. I mean, you're right. That was 
that was his peak. Um, and from start to finish, it, it's brilliant. And Sir Duke, yeah, fantastic song. I remember the first time I heard this. It's one of those instant, like, love at first listen type of, of tracks. Oh, yeah. And, and sometimes I'm a little weird about horns in rock music. Sometimes it works for me. Sometimes it doesn't. It just depends. But this one works, clearly. Oh, yeah, the brass on this. I mean, it's, it's exceptional. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was my, that's my next one. All right. Well, I follow up a very long history of a band you've never heard of with not a whole lot because everybody knows my next pick, but they may not know that the original lyrics went something like this. Ooh, wee, ooh, you look just like Ginger Rogers. Oh, oh, I move just like Fred Astaire. Hmm. Would you be talking about Weezer by any chance? I am talking about Weezer, ah. who uh, at the last minute changed the lyrics to reference Buddy Holly and Mary Tyler Moore. What's with his homies, this is my girl. What have they got front? What did we ever do to these guys that made the soul by your Actress Mary, Mary Tyler Moore, of course, she became a household name just a couple years after Holly's death uh, when she landed a starring role on the Dick Van Dyke show in 61. Um, that switch to the, the late 50s and early 60s uh, icons really uh, kind of made the band. I mean, I, I, this was the first time that I caught wind of Weezer, and it is all because of the music video. Well, and, and do you remember, I think we might have been together the first time. I think we were. Because it was in the Bowling Green Union when yes. they had a television, they would show music. Yeah, videos. we looked up and yeah. And yeah, it was a happy, happy, happy days, days parody, yeah. of course. And yeah, that that, and that was really when I, I realized, you know, the Nirvana kind of caused a revolution in having, you know, killing hair bands, of course, um, bringing about grunge, but it also opened the door to all these other alternative acts. Uh, a lot of them, which would have been metal bands, had they had the chops. Uh, like Ben Folds uh, right. and Weezer, uh, but ended up finding uh, more of a comfort zone uh, with alternative music and, and playing around with some of the conventions there. Yeah, when the, you know, those are artists that found their niche. I mean, there, there were a lot that, like like the last band I just referenced, of course, which was not in the 90s, but um, they, they never found their identity. Right, um, and Weezer found it in what's kind of referred to as nerdcore in some way, oh, or geek rock. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, that switch. I mean, to the to the 1950s icon, I mean, and the use of vintage Happy Days footage, intercut with shots of Weezer, Weezer uh, performing on the original Arnold's Drive-In set, no less, with Spike Jones directing, I believe. Yeah, yeah. and and Al Molinaro, yeah, who, who right. played the diner's owner of the on the series. Uh, he makes a cameo appearance in the video. Um, it was it was hands down one of the most popular clips of '95. It scored four MTV Video Music Awards, including Breakthrough Video and Best Alternative Music Video. It won uh, two Billboard Music Video Awards, among them Alternative Modern Rock Clip of the Year. Now, it, it's kind of funny though to, to actually see how this works because Happy Days, of course, aired in the '70s. But it was set in the 50s when Buddy Holly, of course, made his mark. So here we have a 90s video referencing a 70s TV series set in the 1950s. That's very cool. It, it is. Yeah. It's, I mean, you want to talk about generational sure. gaps. You know, um, this was Weezer's second single. Uh, it followed Undone, the sweater song, which I did not hear until after I was introduced well. right. to, to Buddy Holly. Um, and, you know, really... When downloading became legal and practical, this song proved very popular. And in 2006, it became Weezer's second gold single because of that, uh, following Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills was the first gold single. Um, And it was largely thanks to downloads of over 500,000 copies. Uh, The popularity of the song also skyrocketed after the Microsoft Windows 95 release because uh, this this video was included... um, it, amongst a number of fun stuff items oh. on the installation CD. It's a 95? Windows 95? Windows 95, Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I I, suppose, I never discovered that. Yeah. <laughs> Watching a music video on your computer was a pretty big deal at the time, I, I guess. I but. do remember that Windows Media Player around that time gave you a free song, and it was David Burns. Uh, what was the name of it? It was kind of this, of course, I say Latin-inspired. That's a lot of David Burns stuff. Yeah. It was from his... Um, Solo album, Look Into the Eyeball, I think was the name of it. Mm. I had to look back. But I just remember that was, and it worked because I bought the record. I, I like the song a lot. But mm. I knew, I remember that freebie. I just don't remember the video freebies. Yeah, yeah, no, Buddy Holly was included, um, I, I guess. I, I did not have a copy of Windows 95. But the track, here's, here's my last uh, couple of points, though. The track almost didn't make the album. Weezer lead singer Rivers Cuomo did not think that the song fit on the album, and he was tempted to leave it off. Um, it, it was the album's producer, Cars frontman, Rick Ocasek, mm-hmm. which I, I remember vaguely on pronouncing that incorrectly. Well, it's, it's, it's Rick Ocasek, Ocasek. But, but everybody says Rick Ocasek, so it's like the Van Gogh Van Gogh thing. Yeah. If you say it correctly, everyone thinks you're an idiot. So. I don't remember what episode that was, but I, I remember, <laughs> right. I remember you, you right. schooled me on how to, how right. to say the name. But yeah, uh, Cars frontman, I'm just going to say Rick Ocasek. Uh, that's how I've always said it. Uh, he, he produced the album. He was the one that convinced Cuomo to leave the song on um and Cuomo has since said that he's very grateful that they did because he has said it's, it is his favorite song to perform live uh, according to uh Cuomo this I found interesting the I'm yours you're mine lyric is largely misinterpreted though because he says the song is not a romantic couple at all it's actually about defending a platonic female friend hmm. interesting which is not how I've interpreted that song listening to it through the years and as a final aside, just because I thought this was kind of cool, the single Buddy Holly was released to radio on September 7th, 1994, uh, which would have been Buddy Holly's 58th birthday. Mm. So there you go. I went with Buddy Holly. It hit number 18 in 94 on Billboard. Everybody know this, knows this tune. It's just, it, it's a 90s 
like staple. He, like Humans Do. That was the name of the song by David Byrne. Okay. And the, the album was... I don't know that I know that song. Yeah, no. It, it's, a, it's a catchy tune. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I got to see Weezer a few years ago, live, finally, and they go all out with their sets. The, about three or four times during the show, they changed the set. It's really, really cool. And so for this portion of the concert, they basically recreate um, Al's... Uh, hang out from really? Happy Days on on stage on stage and they and they sing Buddy Hall and a few other songs and then they change it to a garage setting and, and they sing in the garage and, and other tracks as well hmm. I forget all of them but there were about three or four different you know pretty pretty intricate set designs um, that they changed throughout the show that is impressive yeah, yeah. how much time is lost for the setup though what I think they have I think it's a, it's a situation if I remember correctly it was a while ago but they either had a curtain. And they might play a song in front of the curtain while they were changing the set behind it. Or it might have just been one of those, you know, took 10, 15 seconds and we just all kind of watched everything change. I think that's what it was. I think we just kind of sat through the scene change and they had it all. They would roll things out. You know, they'd have everything like six or seven different pieces with wheels. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so they just wheel it out, put it together and then switch it out. But it was cool. I mean, because concerts... You know, it's a visual experience as it much is. as an auditory yeah. one. And as much as I enjoy just seeing someone on stage performing, sometimes with a band like Weezer, it's fun to add a little spice. Oh, yeah. I want, as a former drama teacher, and then, you know, you, of course, as well, have the drama history in your uh, experience. Um, theatrical set designs, I mean, it makes a huge difference right. when you're watching sure. anything live. You know, I, I think concerts are always better for it. I would even argue... You know the change of costume, or, or the change. Yeah, and they, and they changed costumes as well right. to fit. So they put on the sweaters uh, they had during the that phase. Sweaters, yeah, okay. They would change based on whatever environment they were in. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. No, I definitely recommend seeing them. And, and Weezer's one of those bands where a lot of the critics will say, you know, the, the Blue Album, and then of course Pinkerton afterwards, which was a commercial flop at the time, but now is seen as their, their their masterpiece. Those two records still got a lot of respect from the critics. And then after that, now I really love the Green Album, which was the third record. I love that one. But then I can see where there's a bit of a drop-off. Um, I think River became obsessed with wanting to be a mega superstar. Mm. He kind of lost some of the irony and really wanted to be relevant, kind of like Bono continues to still try to be relevant. Sure. And I think they still have a solid audience. And, of course, with the revival when they did the remake of, of uh, Africa, Africa and yeah. introduced themselves to another generation. So they're they're doing well. But... I would argue their best work was first three records. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. All right, my next tune. Here's a weird segue going from Weezer to Commodores. <laughs> yes. Um, wow, that would be fun to play out on the, the mixtape. <laughs> and I'm going with the song Night Shift from 1985, which is post Lionel Richie Commodores. Yes. I still can hear him say 
Marvin Gaye was unfortunately murdered, uh, I believe, by his father. Yeah, his dad shot him. In, in an argument, and that kind of rocked the, the, the music world. And so there were a number of, of tributes um, to Marvin Gaye um, after this happened. And so this song uh, is a tribute to, to Marvin Gaye and to Jackie Wilson, who also <laughs> yep. passed away uh, around this time. Of course, right. of course, he was older. But. Yeah. And it, it, it reserves one verse for each star. So the first verse is about Marvin Gaye and the second about Jackie Wilson. But what's really clever in the lyrics is the way that they incorporate song titles. So in the first verse, um, they mention what's going on. In the second verse, they talk about how the, he took us higher and higher. higher, and higher yeah. So it's just it's kind of clever how they, they, they work that in. Um, like Sir Duke, uh, Night Shift hit the number one spot on the chart and won a Grammy. This time it was the first for the Commodore. So all the time... Which is that really Lionel Richie hard was to with believe. the Commodores. They never won a Grammy. This is the the first, probably only Grammy they ever uh, won uh, in 1986 for for best R and B performance. And I do I do love this song just for what it is, but it's also kind of special for me because my grandfather passed away um, when this song was on the radio, and I just remember really identifying with the sentiment of the song. Right. Um, how it just it seemed like yesterday we were we were doing something fun and and now all, suddenly it, it, it's over. And then there was another song also about Marvin Gaye, which was popular time. Diana Ross's "Missing You." Yeah, a, a lot of people forget that one. And that was another one that that really reminded me of my grandfather. So I think it's interesting how somebody can write a song to kind of help their grieving process uh, for one particular person, but to make it universal enough that someone else can also work through their trauma with the same song. Oh, yeah. I, I, I agree. And I, a number of artists have done it for a number of inspiring celebrities. I mean, CeeLo Green, just a few years ago, I mean, a few years ago, it's been a long time. <laughs> it's actually been a while now, but uh, right after Robin Williams, uh, right after Robin Williams took his life, CeeLo Green did that very thing with, with uh, Robin Williams. Um, that's just the first one that comes to, sure, to sure, the top yeah. of my head, but there, there are so many artists that have done that no, when you when you picked Night Shift and, and shared it with me, you freed up two slots on my my list because originally I had Marvin Gaye by Charlie Puth and Megan Trainor, and I had Jackie Wilson said by Van Morrison. Oh, so yeah, right, immediately right. I cut Sorry the two. About that. No, 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 it's <laughs> it's fine. They'll be on the mentioned songs list. But I, I was just I was relieved because, like I said, I was having such a difficult time choosing songs and cutting, you know, deciding what to cut. So when you threw in Night Shift, I was just like, well, that takes care of two of them right there. It is so, such a solid song. It, it, it was, you know, the, it, it earned the Grammy. Really oh, it did. did. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, my next one, I love this tune. Um, it, it's just, my, my fourth selection, folks, for today's mixtape features a guitar lick sampled from the opening credits of the 1960 sitcom 
the monsters. Oh, yes, I know what you're talking Yes, yes, So, yes. of course... Which I love, by the way. I am referring to Uma Thurman oh, by yes. Fall Out Boy. I'm not a big Fallout Boy fan. Not not because I have anything against them. I just haven't explored their catalog. But right. but this song is great. Oh yeah, I, it's just I. Well, okay. So so the chorus of this track, of course, references the scene in Pulp Fiction, where Uma Thurman's character Mia Wallace asks Vincent Vega, played by Travolta, to dance with her during the twist contest at Jack Ra- Jack Rabbit Slims. But there are also references to, to another Tarantino movie throughout the song, which is, of course is Kill Bill. Um, bassist Pete Wentz has said in interviews that when producers Jake Sinclair and Young Wolf Hatchlings heard the sampled theme from the Munsters TV show, they said through the mic into the, you know, into the recording studio, uh, they said that that was very cool. In fact, the direct quote that, that they, they said was that was like Qu- Quentin Tarantino cool. That is what prompted the band to create a song around the idea and to write a song in the Quentin Tarantino universe. Interesting. So it was uh, the producer's enjoyment of the Munsters sample that actually inspired um, the Tarantino uh, illusion. Um, Now, in an interview with Rolling Stone, Wentz said that, he said, quote, I'll just give you the quote, to me, Uma Thurman and Winona Ryder they were these women in pop culture who were quirky, but that made me only crush on them harder. And rather than going with the traditional Uma Thurman role, we thought a lot about Kill Bill and who her character was in that. And this kind of resilience and this violence. But there's something that's authentic about it, like a woman taking revenge or being empowered. So that, he said, was what the chorus of the song is about. And the verses are what you would do to try and capture this woman's affection. So that 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 is the general idea of the song because the the song I mean I'm a lyrics guy but but the song kind of jumps all over the place so it was nice to actually get his take uh, in my research of, of you know what they were trying to do with the song she is one of the original manic pixie dream girls oh, she, that oh yeah really popped up in every script it seemed like in the nineties right oh, yeah absolutely starting with beautiful girls was that her well I mean that was I don't know if that was I don't know first. if that was her first but. Um, it was right there. I, so I between know. her and, and, and Winona and uh, Zoe Deschanel, 
uh, am I pronouncing it right? Deschanel, yeah. Deschanel, um, like those are, uh, Natalie Portman. Oh, yeah. Those are your original Manic Pixie Dream Girls. And they are. Of course, Portman, she, I mean, you can Beautiful go back girls, to the, girls, Garden back, State. Yeah. Although you can go back to the professional, sure. you know, for Portman. Um, but, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, they were a solid four, you know, quartet of, of Pixie Dream Girl. Uh, yeah. And for those who don't know, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is this kind of archetype that was created by male script writers in the 90s. <laughs> yes. Um, creating this character who was beautiful and cool at the same time. And it's this idea, I guess it's right, every male's fantasy to have somebody who's beautiful and cool. Uh, when I say cool, you know, likes all the same stuff that you like, uh, has is quirky, but lets you kind of do what you want to do. Yeah, it's yeah. it's that it's that unicorn that doesn't exist, nor, nor should it. I think that's not a loving relationship, um, having someone who just, um, you know, rubber stamps everything that you feel is right in life. Yeah. But we see it quite a bit. Agreed. Well, well, Pete Wentz, he referenced his other crush, Winona Ryder, on the Folia Du track uh, called She's My Winona. I don't know if you've ever heard that I haven't, one. no. Uh-uh. Um, and asked by, this is my last, my last aside, asked by NME in 2016 if Uma Thurman ever responded to the lyrical name check, Pete Wentz replied, um, he said that they sent it to her to clear it to make sure she was okay with the song. And he said, quote, I don't know what she thinks of the song itself, but she was okay with us naming it for her. I think she said it was cute or something. He said, I don't know how I'd feel if some band had a song called Pete Wentz, but fortunately my name doesn't sing very well, so I think I'm safe. <laughs> so um, that, was, that was the only one out of all of these name drops. That was the only time that I found any, anything in my research about the bands actually asking permission hmm, or, or yeah. getting clearance from the celebrities they were name dropping. Now, some of these are tributes, of course, like, sure. we, like we've said, but yeah, I, Fall Out Boy, that was the only only one that I could find anything in my research where they actually got approval, uh, received approval before uh, before the name drop. Yeah, I have an example where they played the song for that uh, for the person that they, and the person they hated, hated it. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Hmm. I think that's next 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 time. Okay, yeah, a, a lot of bands I know have like like River Phoenix have mm-hmm. gotten seasoned. I mean, you had uh, Eve Plum. Remember, yeah, oh yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was not happy with that was the name of the uh, the band. The band, the, yeah, Eve that's Plum. what. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were a lot of. Well, you have one coming up actually, so I'm not gonna keep going. But yeah, a lot of bands have name dropped just in choosing, you know, the the name for their their band itself. So. Your turn. All right. Well, if you want to talk about a song that uh, probably got the most mileage than any other song in the rock era, it would be this song here. And I'm referring to Candle in the Wind by Elton John and, and Bernie Toppin from 1973's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road.
One of the most iconic and enduring songs from the John Toppin catalog, the original Candle in the Wind, was written as a sympathetic tribute to Marilyn Monroe. Toppin writes about her legendary rise and fall while admiring her beauty, but also imagining her vulnerability. And it, it, it always was a very, very touching song. Uh, in, in America, we didn't know it as much because it was never a single. It was released as a single in England and went to number one. But they released Benny and the Jets in America instead of Candle in the Wind. Right. Which went to number went one. Went to number one. So I yeah. guess they knew what they were doing, right? Yeah. So it's a song when I was growing up that I liked because I had Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and I knew the song. But to me, it was a kind of a deep track or just on like a non-single, of course. And then 1986. Do you remember 1986? Oh, yeah. It was the live. Live uh, from the, with the Melbourne Symphony. Melbourne, yeah. Right. Yeah. In yeah. Australia. It's one, the one where John was wearing the powdered wig. Right. And they rearranged all of these songs with the symphony, and Candle in the Wind, Candle in the Wind was one of them, and it was released as a single, and I believe that one uh, made it to number six. So that one was released as a single and made it to number six. And then, of course, oh, later yes. on, moving on to 1997, when Princess Diana is killed before her prime, and um, the lyrics are rewritten by Toppin as a tribute to Princess Diana. Um, Elton John performs it at the funeral and then releases it. Uh, I believe it was a, a charity. The it, money went to, yeah. the proceeds went to, to some of Diana's charities. It did. And that song, not only did it hit number one in America, it hit number one all around the world. Mm-hmm. And to this day is the second biggest selling single in rock music history. I believe it. I mean, Princess, when Diana died, I mean, she was so loved, you know, and she was, she was a commoner, I and mean, she, she defied everything. That, well, she wasn't quite a commoner. She, well, well, no, but what I mean. She was from a wealthy family, you know, but yes. What I, what I mean by that is. She related to the people she, she, as yes. a commoner rather than a royal. Exactly, yes. yeah. I, no, I, I, I know she, what you mean. Yeah. I know, yeah, she came from wealth, but, what, yeah. but my point is, yeah, she, I get you. Yeah. she was just, she was. She wasn't pretentious. No, she was one of yes. us, you yes. know, and. Yeah, when the paparazzi, I mean, I, oh, I just remembered the night of her death. I mean, mm-hmm. every news channel, I mean, that was the story, that was the only story you heard about for uh, probably a couple of weeks. I was watching weeks. Austin Powers, and after the movie is when I heard it. But yeah, yeah, you remember those things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, do you want to know what the first yeah, best-selling? Yeah, what, what, what is? It's still White Christmas by Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby. Because that was released year after year after year. Um, during the, I suppose, well, it was before the rock era, but then was continued to be released, I think, throughout the 50s and 60s every season. So that's still the biggest selling single. So I shouldn't say the rock era. I think I originally said rock era. Yeah, you did. I just meant to say, like, of of, um, American recording history. Hmm. See, I don't know. I I give, I I feel, I mean, yeah, the numbers stand up, but I think Elton and Bernie get get a lot more credit there because if you're going to re-release the track year after year that's yeah this is one pati- particular right time period correct yeah. no I, I, I get you there 
the title comes from a comment. I didn't know this from legendary producer and executive Clive Davis. Clive Davis made the comment in earshot of Bernie Taupin that when Janis Joplin died, her life was like a candle in the wind. And so Taupin always remembered this. And then when it came time to, to write in a song about somebody cut down before their prime, he decided to use it. Um, here is, though, kind of a myth. Contrary to what a lot of people believe, Taupin was not a rabid Monroe fan. I mean, he had nothing against her. But he set out to write a song that could easily have been written about James Dean, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain. He wanted to write a song about beauty being cut down in its prime or before its prime. Hmm. And so you can see how they were easy, easily able to translate to Princess Diana because she would be a perfect example oh, yeah, of no. what Toppin was trying to do in 1973. So I remember at first thinking, oh, that's kind of crappy. They took Marilyn's song away from her and gave it to Diana or whatever. Um, but, not, but that's not really what the song was about. It wasn't about Marilyn per se. She was just an example uh, hmm. of what he was trying to say. Yeah, two things that I never knew. First of all, I thought that I, I was sure that Toppin was a huge Marilyn yeah, fan. Yeah. I mean, given, given the lyrics of the song. Um, but I find it fascinating that the song title comes from a discussion about Janis Joplin. Yeah, yeah. That, that is very cool. I, I, I had never heard that before. That and then, you, we could almost take it a step further, kind of. You watch Parks and Rec? Oh, yeah. So, if you watch Parks and Rec, you know Andy Dwyer was yeah. uh, asked to write a tribute song for Little Sebastian, Little Sebastian. And I believe one of the characters said, you know, just something like Candle in the Wind. Or, no, it needs to be bigger than Candle in the bigger. Wind. It needs to be yeah. like 10,000 candles in the wind or whatever, or 5,000 candles. And, and so that's a line actually in the song he writes for Lil Sebastian, you're 5,000 candles in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I can't think of any song that had as much mileage. So White Christmas had mileage, the same recording year after year after year. Um, but this song itself, the actual music of the song, um, hit the chart in three different versions um, and was successful each time. In different decades, too, right? Yeah. Because um, the 70s would have been yeah. uh, the original. 70s. And the remake was in the 80s. 80s and, and the 90s was the... Um, in fact, Elton John has had a top 40 hit, I think, in five decades now. Yeah. Maybe six. It's, it, it, he's, he's had... And, of course, he just had a hit song with... Um, it was a remake, kind of a dance tune with, an, right. with a younger uh, performer. Well, Dua Lipa. Um, right, right, right. But then he also... Uh, followed that up with a, a, a similar track that he recorded with Britney Spears. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, uh, what's the what? I'm trying to think of what the Britney song was. Um, uh, I'm cheating. I'm looking at "Hold Me Closer" is the song that uh, was recorded with Britney, but it's very similar. Yeah. To, well, and that would be the oh, is it like a Tiny Dancer remix kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be I just counted. I would be a sixth decade. Uh, having a top 40 hit. So yeah. that's pretty impressive. So that's, there, there's longevity in the artist and there's longevity there is. in this song. Yeah, now Britney didn't go as high as Dua Lipa's uh, work with him. I mean, Cold Heart was, Cold Heart was everywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, I, I mean, it's pretty cool though. I mean, yeah. If you're a Britney fan, if, you, if you're a John fan, look it up. Um, I think it was on Top 40 Radio, which I know that's not our right. thing. But um, yeah, no, it, it it did fairly well as well. But the two of them, too, have had their ups and downs, but a little bit different than the journey, like, let's say, Springsteen or Billy Joel, where the, things kind of got a little bit stale um, in the sense that, yeah, I mean, he, he was huge. He was everywhere. And then Top and, and, and John had a split, 
And there were a bunch of records in the late 70s, which are pretty awful. Yeah, they There are a couple bright spots here and there, but pretty awful. And then Jump Up comes out in 82, which was kind of a return to commercial success. Um, but then Toppin rejoins them for Too Low for Zero after that. And then it's kind of hit or miss. You have a few, like Leather Jackets, which is an awful record. But then he kind of has that resurgence, and he goes back to his early stuff uh, stylistically. Uh, Songs from the West Coast, I believe, was a record um, that had two singles. Uh, this Train Don't Stop Here Anymore and mm-hmm. um, I Want Love, which two of the greatest songs in his catalog or in their catalog. So he finds moments where he continues to stay fresh. And so I think this idea of lending his songs in remixes but also performing them with the artist is just another step in that it process. Is. And, you know, I, got, I have to give a shout-out, too, to The Union, which was his collaboration with Leon Russell. Oh yeah, right. Because that right. was yes. just that that blew me away. Yes. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it is hit or miss for for Elton, um, and then the second half of his career. But I mean, really, he could have called it quits when he and Bernie split, and he would have been one of the he would have been a, a legend. Just you know, for that brief period in the 1970s, where album after album after album, it was just you know unprecedented. Right. Really. And one can see why it was easy for him to succumb to substance abuse. Oh, yeah. Because if he wasn't touring, he was recording. If he wasn't recording, he was touring, writing, and yeah, it was just an onslaught. Yeah. Um, the record company was making as much money as they could. Well, and he was in an abusive relationship. He was trying to hide his homosexuality. I mean, yeah. There was a lot going on in Elton's sure. life. Yep. So, yep. yeah, the drugs, uh, you can't, uh, you know, you, you can't fault him. I mean, there was a lot that he was trying to cope with, and coping strategies were limited it's just so. nice that he's able to look back and enjoy the fruits of his career and, yeah. and, and, and accept the accolades and to have this tour that's been going on now for three plus years yeah. this final <laughs> the farewell, farewell tour. tour so yeah is it over now I don't know if it's I think still, his is over is it now Kiss is still doing their farewell tour which has been going on for a couple of years and apparently their last stop is going to be in Cleveland oh really and I was almost tempted to go and I've seen them several times I don't need to see them again but I was tempted since it's supposed to be their last show ever hmm. but then you know they always come back oh, they always <laughs> yeah yeah every in fact Aerosmith is launching their farewell tour now uh-huh, you yeah. know damn good and well that right. you know Tyler and Perry aren't going anywhere but right. They can call it that. Helps them sell tickets. So, did, did, did we talk about speaking of Aerosmith as a quick aside? Did we talk about um, Steven Tyler and McKinley High School? Oh no, we've never actually talked about that. Okay, I mean, it's a great story though. Yeah, so you know it already. Yeah. Well, just briefly, uh, we we live in Canton. Canton, of course, is the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and and recently they've been having different concerts during the festival in August. And several years back, um, they got Aerosmith to come and play which is cool because they uh, had a concert. I didn't go, but they had a concert in our high school stadium. And they used our, our old high school as their green room. Yep. And apparently they had a little bit of fun. And I guess Steven Tyler signed a bunch of the library books and put them back on the shelf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they he, can't find he, some of them. He also wrote graffiti on a number of desks yes. in, the, in the classroom. But most famously on the library door on the inside, he signed his name. Yeah. And it was there for many, many years. In fact, at one point, they put a little uh, uh, plastic uh, over top of it to, and with a little tag, kind of you know, almost like a museum piece on this door. And then they got a new principal a few years ago, and he had the plastic removed, and he had the door painted over. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> I know. That I did. I did not know that part of the story. Yeah. Um, no, I was there at the concert. It was the first Legends concert yeah. that, that the Hall of Fame put on, and... 
It was fun. I, I had seen Aerosmith a couple of times live before then, but just it was the first time that Canton in the new stadium was bringing in a major, major act, and they, they, it was it was an Aerosmith concert. I mean, it was it was fun. It was good. Um, I've, I've I've always liked Aerosmith live. I'm not going to see him on the farewell tour. I've, I'm done spending money seeing Aerosmith live. But um, man, they they got rid of the signature on the that that just I know. That really stings. Why would you do that? <laughs> All right. Um, well, we already had a tribute. Uh, you, you brought the tribute to, to Marvin and Jackie. I now give you a tribute to Smokey, who... Um, Smokey, I don't think... I don't think he's dead, is he? No, no. He's still he's alive. He's still, still alive. In fact, he's had so much plastic surgery. Uh, from a distance, he looks like he's 40. But up close, he looks like an overly stretched... Rubber band. He's scary up close, yeah. Yeah, no, he's uh, 83 years young. He's still with us. I thought he was, but I wasn't sure. Um, this song, though, is a tribute to the Motown singer and songwriter Smokey Robinson. It is by the British band ABC. It hit number five in 1987. Um, when Smokey Sings. When Smokey Sings. Which another example of, as I was trying to figure out music genres as a kid, seeing these white guys perform soul. Yeah. Kind of like Hall and Oates. Yeah. It was different. Listening through all of our tracks, yours and mine combined, um, yesterday for the last time, uh, running through before our our podcast today, my wife, who had never heard when Smokey sings, just looked at me and said, "I don't think that." How did she say it? Something to the effect of Smokey sings wonderfully, but this band, whoever they are, they can stop anytime. That's now. unfair. I know. I looked Maybe at her great. And, she, and she looked at me and she said, please tell me this was one of Dave's He's got it. No. And I said, no, this is one of mine. And we got into this argument because she was, I, I don't know. I love this. He's I love got a it. nice crooner voice. Yeah, I love ABC. They use, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the similar chord structure to um, Tears of a Clown mm-hmm. uh, behind this song. Yeah. It's a great tribute. Now, I've always been an ABC fan, but Gail, she, she heard the band for the very first time yesterday and she was not impressed. Um, which I don't know why. I was then tempted to play, you know, Look of Love and, you know, I was Poison I, Arrow. Poison Arrow. I was going to mm-hmm. play all of them, but I thought, eh, it's probably, you know, Happy Wife, Happy Life. It's probably I mean, not it, worth it. It, it is <laughs> so. a new, it's a new wave band doing soul as a yep. tribute to a Motown artist, but 
Yeah. I think it works. No, I, I always loved the tune. I wouldn't have included it otherwise, really. Um, you know, ABC, they were a British band, and Robinson and his group, The Miracles, they fared far better in America. Um, but Smokey was, I mean, he was world-renowned and loved around the world, um, especially in the UK, and especially by ABC lead vocalist Martin Fry. Fry was a huge fan. Um, the song, it alludes to how Robinson could capture a range of emotions in his songs from devotion to heartbreak. No matter what he's singing about, however, when Smokey sings, you forget about your problems. That's, that's the gist of, of the tune. Uh, ABC, they were, they were a new romantic group uh, who enjoyed six UK and four US top 20 singles. When Smokey Sings was their last top 20 single in both territories. Uh, ABC chose their name because, quote, the first three letters of the alphabet are known the world over. That was why Fry and his bandmates chose ABC. Interesting. It is interesting, and they're not wrong, but then I think you also have the Cyrillic alphabet. You have, you have a number of alphabets <laughs> right. that do not include the letters ABC, but I, I get what he was going for there. Um, interestingly, the track became a hit just as Smokey Robinson was enjoying a career resurgence. Uh, the week that when Smokey Sings peaked at number five, Smokey Robinson's one heartbeat was at number 17, and a few months earlier, Robinson reached number eight with Just to See Her. Uh, that was 1987, uh, when Robinson had that huge, huge album, the big comeback. It didn't last long, but uh, in my opinion, the sentiment to When Smokey Sings is, is kind of spot on. Uh, a, a lot of Robinson songs, especially in the 70s, they kind of featured lyrics that were uninspired. I and mean, Smokey's payday, I mean, when he was at his peak definitely in the early to mid-60s. Um, by the 70s, yeah, the music just kind of grew stale. They were often flat, cliched, but still, I mean, when Smokey sang those lyrics in that high, weeping countertenor, he invested them with, with a tortured, feverish agony. He always did. And nobody else sings like Smokey. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Marvin fan. Marvin, I think, is the face of Motown. But Smokey, there, there's you'll never have another Smokey Robinson. I mean, his voice is definitely distinguished. I mean, there's nobody else that sounds like him. He also had a resurgence when American Idol was popular. I believe he was a guest judge or one of the mentors. Oh, was he? I'm pretty sure. Okay. Yeah, and they did they did all of Smokey's songs, and then he coached them during that episode. Okay. I I, I never watched this, the series religiously. I mean, I, I would tune in here and there um, just to keep up with who was still, you know, in the rankings and whatnot, because at least in the first few seasons, I was kind of... Uh, following along, but I, I've never watched the series. Uh, I've never watched American Idol from start to finish in any season. So. The, the only time I ever heard a coach mentor on that show basically tell an artist that they couldn't do a song a certain way was when Brian May was the coach mentor during one episode. And one of the contestants, and that, and that by the way, that's where Adam Lambert ended up oh, yeah, meeting yeah. up with, with yeah. Queen. But one of the contestants wanted to do We Will Rock, rock You as a rap Oh. <laughs> which I can see where it lends itself as a rap. Oh, yeah, I would work. And, and, and Brian May just flat out said no. <laughs> I don't even hear it. No, no, no. Let's do something different. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, if if there is a Queen song that could lend itself to rap, you know, interpretation, it's definitely that one. But yeah. I mean, I give the singer props for trying to do something different, but it's just, it's funny. He, he was very possessive of that song. <laughs> Understandably, it was his baby. So. All right. Okay, so my turn. Um, 
Yeah. Well, we talked about uh, artists that made a big impact. And unfortunately, when I mentioned stale, this artist, sometimes some of this newer stuff, again, it's good. Um, but it's not necessarily uh, the fresh stuff that we uh, grew to hear in the 70s and 80s. I'm talking about Bruce Springsteen, one of one of the uncles that we talk about on this um, show, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, and Jimmy Buffett, who are our kind of uh, proxy parents growing up. And the song Springsteen by Eric Church, which came out in 2012 from his album Chief, is a song that I think you were surprised. I was very surprised that you included this. I was surprised that you knew the song, actually. And yes, it's well, well known if you're listening to this program that I don't particularly like modern country. Uh, to me, it's just very polished, very very produced. I do like alt country a lot. Uh, I do like old country a lot, although I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a fan, but, but, I, but I appreciate it. But, but a lot of new country to me is just, you know, cut and paste, you know, paint by numbers type of stuff. This song, however, I love. To this day, when I hear that song, I see you standing there on that long discount shade, store-bought tan, flip-flops and cut-off jeans. Somewhere between that set and the sun, I'm on fire, I'm born to run. You looked at me and I was done, but we were just getting started. I was singing to you, you were singing to me I was so alive, never been more free Fired up my daddy's lighter and we sang oh, oh, oh. Stayed there till they forced us out And took the long way to your house I can still hear the sound of you saying don't go I have friends who are country fans, and we have a big, huge party at the end of the school year by one of my coworkers' pool. In fact, every week we have a day where if you can make it, people show up and we just hang out and talk and listen to music and so forth. And so my buddy likes country, but he also likes early 80s and he likes Springsteen and all sorts of different stuff. But he would put on these mixes, and this was one of the songs that would come up, and I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. So that, that's where I heard of this song. Um, and, and so it's not just because it's a tribute to my favorite music artist of all time. And it's not just me, because I, I found out the song actually crossed over. Oh, yeah. Kind of like Eddie Rabbit and, and Crystal Gale used to do in the, in the 70s and 80s. Yep. And went to number 19 on the Hot 100. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like a pop country song to me, but maybe that's why I do like it, because it's accessible enough to people who are not modern country fans. Uh, and Rolling Stone named it number 58 on their greatest country songs of all time. No, it's much loved. And I, 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 I'm not an Eric Church fan, per se. I'm, I'm not a country fan, per se. But, yeah, no, Springsteen, it, it is a great, a great track. So, as I was trying to figure out why I like the song so much, and I tried to dissect it. And, and I think, first of all, it's got a great melody. You know I'm, I'm a sucker for melody. Great melody. The lyrics are cinematic, Right. And there's a whole lot of reverie. And if there was anything that you and I used to do growing up <laughs> was put on an album, drive around aimlessly, and just, you know, whether it's summertime or whatever, 
just talk about whatever was on our mind. Yep. But then when you look back and you think of those, of course, we have a tendency as human beings to romanticize things in the past and forget tragic things, which I think is probably a survival, <laughs> evolutionary survival skill. Um, but I, yeah, you look back on those days and you think of those hot summer nights when we just had nowhere to go and we were just hanging out and we were listening to music. And how sometimes then when you hear certain songs, when I hear half a mile away from Billy Joel, I think about hanging out at your house in high school, right? And all those memories and all those emotions come back. And that's actually what this song is about, right? How, the, how power, music has the power to, like a time machine, literally take you back to a moment where you feel all the same emotions and you somewhat ache to return to that. And of course, if you were to, you'd realize that it wasn't as great as you right. <laughs> was in your head. Sure. But that's just what we, what we seem to do. And the song centers around a teenage romance. And like I said, how this song can take you back to any time or place. He also drops a few Springsteen titles um, pretty cleverly into the lyrics, like Born to Run, I'm on Fire. And then, again, to kind of go full circle, in that summer of 2012, now when I hear Springsteen, this is the first time I've listened to this song in, in quite a few years, I'm actually transported back to those summer days 10 years ago when I would sit by the pool with my coworkers. And we still do it, but there was that time when it was kind of a peak, you know, when the most people were showing up. Oh, yeah. And it just, you know, you have different phases in your life. And so just like this song, you know, the character in the song is reminded of his youth because of a Springsteen song he hears on the radio. Yeah, and I hear this song, I'm transported back to a, a, a simpler time in my life, sitting around a pool just listening to the music, so... Yep. Um, that's probably why I, I like it. And, and just musically, it's just, it's a solid song too. I mean, there's no, it's not overly polished, not a bunch of, you know, unnecessarily frills. It's just a, a flat out great song. It is. Yeah. I'm, I, I was both surprised that you included it and impressed. The, I mean, it, it is, it's a fantastic song. And if you were wondering, had Bruce heard the song? Yes. Bruce heard the song and Bruce loves the song. In fact, after he heard it, whatever show Springsteen was playing, he grabbed his set list, turned it over, wrote a really nice letter to Eric Church, and mailed it to him. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, now our uncles, you know, I almost included, well, I, I don't want to give anything away for side, side B, but there is one that I, I almost included. Christy Lee? No, I wasn't going to go to Christy Lee. I was actually going to go with uh, Elvis Presley Boulevard. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was going to go really, That's really, pretty obscure. That's yeah. more obscure than the real obscure one I have next Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, you're talking about a, a B-side single that never made it. And now it, it's a deep cut for Billy, oh, yeah. Billy Joel. I almost went Elvis Presley Boulevard. In fact, it's kind of funny because I, I had at one time six different Elvis songs on my list. And none of them made the final cut. I just I, I cut Elvis entirely. I would be willing to bet in rock and roll anyway. Elvis is probably the most name dropped celebrity in music. I don't I mean I have nothing to back that up, but just the number of songs that I can think of and a lot of them we, we couldn't use. We've used them prior. Everything from Black Velvet to Walking in Memphis. I mean, you know, we have used before, sure, but yeah. Elvis just seems to show up still time and time again, year after year. I he may very likely be the most name-dropped celebrity out there, but I don't know. I, I cut them all in the end, but yeah, I almost went Elvis Presley Boulevard. So, well, now you got to put it on the mentioned songs list. True. Well, I didn't bring it up for that purpose, but but <laughs> uh, it's really not a great song. I mean, it's it had it made the album, it would have been definitely filler material. But 
it's a fun song. Well, right? and if you listen to the, to the box set, um, there's an earlier demo of that song right. with a completely different yeah. set of lyrics. Yeah. Yeah, the, the box set's really interesting. Joel was not happy when they released that. He wasn't? Oh, no. Really? No, he didn't give permission for it. Huh, I didn't that, know that. That was all, all, almost all the material there was from the Rhino, um, you know, his his first label. Sure. And, yeah, he didn't get permission family for Productions it. Was Fam- his, family Productions. Yeah, yeah, family. Yeah, 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 not Rhino. <laughs> Rhino. Um, yeah, but family, some of the stuff, but, but not all of it. I mean, a lot of it was, it's throughout his entire career, a lot of different demos oh, and yeah. B-sides. And, oh, yeah, it has the Hassles, it has Attila, it has a lot of his early work. But, yeah, he. I've heard him say in interviews that if if that music was worth being on the albums, it would have made the albums. Yeah, but that's not fair because it's an archival you know, it's a type of box set. Like when you buy Pet Sounds, the box oh, yeah. set yeah. that has all the different takes and, and studio yep. chatter. You're, you're listening to it as a document. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I agree. I, kind of yeah. like uh, Harper Lee's quote-unquote sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird was, was simply a rough draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. And I liked it because it gave me an insight into her mindset the first time through. And I thought it was interesting to see what choices she made. For them to market it as a sequel to Kill a Mockingbird was disingenuous. Uh, yeah, it should have been. It should have been just like the Billy Joel box set. It pr- probably wasn't promoted that way, but it should have been promoted as a archival release. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm, I'm when I when I'm passionate about any band or artist, you know, I, 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 I crave, I love, and hunger for you know the archival demos and and you know be you know. Outtakes and, and the like. That's why. That's why you gotta love Springsteen. Oh yeah. And the man. I, I'm sure there's still a plethora. <laughs> well, we don't even have a lot of demos from him because yeah. they're still releasing right complete songs that yeah. haven't seen the light of day. Yeah. Now he he is. I, we'll be hearing. He's kind of like Tupac. You know, after Tupac died, the joke was every every week there was a new yeah. Tupac. So you're going to be hearing Springsteen for the next hundred years if well, they release Prince everything. Is, Prince is the same. Pro, yeah, Prince. Prince. Kind of oh yeah. But what's really scary now, not to go down this road, but just let's say uh, quickly, you know, AI. We talked about Chat GPT on this uh, this season, but AI now is 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 writing songs mm-hmm. by musical artists in their style. With their voice. With their voice, yeah. Like there was a, quote, new Michael Jackson song that came out, and you cannot tell that that was not written, performed by Michael Jackson. I know, it's crazy. I've referenced before, my family's a huge, we all love anime. And one one of the series that we watch, all of us, just religiously, is One Piece. There, it was uh, it was Ben, um, my my younger son. He he actually was the first to show me that AI can actually write and perform mm-hmm. in the voice because there's a, a recording of Obama singing the the soundtrack in Japanese yeah. to this <laughs> anime, and I was just and it, it's Obama. It was scary. It is crazy. It's it's unbelievably scary. Yeah, I I, I don't know AI. Gotta love it, but I. I I don't know. No, no, there's I, so much dystopic literature that just kind of right. cautions against all of it. Well, but. I mean, I'm fine with it as long as people, you know, are honest about that this is AI because I, th- I, I, I think it's interesting. Like, for instance, here's what I'd like to see. Interesting things like this. Um, the song um, from That Thing You Do oh, yeah, yeah. Um, was actually, they actually held a contest, um, Tom Hanks did, for someone to write a Beatle-like, an early Beatle-like song to use. And so a songwriter submitted that and course it was it was chosen and it is it's early beatles oh, i love the song i would love I to love hear the movie. that song sung by lennon and mccartney yeah 
So, you know, just kind of an experiment. It would just be fun to hear that. I, I don't want it released officially. I don't want it a single. I don't want it to be played on the radio, but it would just be really cool. to. So things like that, I think, would be fun. Yeah, that would be, yeah. Oh, that thing, I love that movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it in forever. In fact, maybe I'll do that. Maybe this week I'll play around and see how easy it is to, to run that one through. Yeah, when, when, you, when you find it. Because on TikTok, there's a whole series. One guy, he's just taken different songs and has Paul McCartney singing them. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, weird songs funny. that you wouldn't ever consider Paul McCartney singing. Mm-hmm. But. Well, when you when you actually find the right uh, AI program and, you know, you, you find a good Lennon McCartney version of it, let me... Yeah, definitely. Me, definitely. You know, share it with me. I'd, I'd be interested to hear that, too. Yeah. All right, my last pick for this week. This one comes from Bananarama. Uh, it's from 1983. Uh, it hit number 95 on Billboard, <laughs> but it hit number three in the U.K., it was much, much bigger in the UK. Uh, the name of the song is Robert De Niro's Waiting. was, for all intents and purposes, a flop on our side of the pond. Some of our listeners may not even be familiar with this Bananarama tune. Uh, the song is about a girl who goes into a fantasy world where she imagines the actor Robert De Niro as her boyfriend. Okay, and that's, that's the point of the song. The, the American actor was a strange choice for the British girl group, but this is a strange song. It, it really is. It's catchy as hell. I love this song, but it's it's very strange. And it's very dark with, with plenty of paranoia. Uh, as the girl feels like the world is closing in on her in a way that De Niro's characters did in movies like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Um, the song was much more somber when it started. It, it originally told the story of a girl who gets raped and uses her Robert De Niro fantasy as an escape. Hmm. And it was this has a dark history, which I, I was kind of surprised by. Um, they toned it down to make the song more palatable, uh, and it was the first single from the album, and it really needed to get airplay. So, the question though is in the song, why is De Niro talking Italian? <laughs> okay, that is because Steve Jolly, who wrote and produced the song with his partner Tony Swain, thought that Italian was a more romantic language and that De Niro speaking it would make him even more appealing to the girl. Now, the girls in Bananarama, who collaborated with Jolly and Swain in writing the song, hated the line, and they hated the talking Italian. They let it stand in an effort to minimize arguments. 
Um, the producers wanted the album to stick with their hit formula, and the girls were really pushing to do something different. So they they compromised. They, they did not uh, stand up against the talking Italian. Details are sketchy, I guess, but according to Banana Rama, Robert De Niro asked to meet them after the song came out. Um, the girls had a few drinks, I guess, before the encounter to, to build up their courage. Um, what happened in that meeting, I, I couldn't find. Um, but apparently he did meet them, what he thinks of the song, I have no idea. Um, the song, though, was originally going to be titled Al Pacino's Waiting. Hmm. Before the girls decided... Then the Italian would have made more sense. It would have made more sense, yeah. Uh, but the Although girl, Robert De Niro's well, Italian, he is, too. He is but, Italian, but I, I feel like Pacino... It's, yeah, I, we're I just, based I, on the roles they Yeah, played, I'm just yeah. thinking The Godfather. Right. Yeah. But, um, Which De Niro was also in. Uh, true, in the sequel, yeah. Right. But yeah, the girls decided that De Niro, Robert De Niro, sounded better than Al Pacino, so De Niro won the 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 illusion, um, won the name drop, so... But that is my last pick for side A. What you got for yours? All right. My last one is another obscure song. It's called Debbie by the B-52s from 1998. As you know, that was pretty late in the B-52s career. Um, From the compilation they released, Time Capsule Songs for a Future Generation. lot of time you will see bands release a greatest hits package and they'll throw a couple new songs on there for the fans that already own all of the songs and release them as singles to hopefully give the the album some traction uh that was famously done by billy joel and his greatest hits were second wind and um yeah the night is still young and still young yeah right so a lot of bands uh did that at the time so this was the first single of two songs that appeared on this that were original. I don't know if this was an older song that they had a demo of and they re-recorded or if this was, was new music. It, it sounds newer B-52s to me, so I'd have a tendency to believe it. it's, it's a newer um, written song. But uh, anyway, the, the, this first single was a uh, musical tribute to punk new wave icon Deborah Harry. Debbie Harry. She now goes by Deborah, I believe. As, yeah. As she uh, is involved in acting and so forth. The, the B-52s clearly evolved as their career progressed. And their songs became more radio-friendly by the late 80s with Love Shack and, and Rome and, and those songs. But to me, they never really lost that unique blend of surf rock and pop and alternative. Uh, even this song, which, which, like I say, comes near the end of their discography, is solid. It's fun. It's melodic. And it still refuses to sound like any other band out there, past or present. Yeah. Can't say future because we don't know, but I can't think of any band that you would listen to and you might fool somebody into thinking it's B-52s. You were talking earlier in the episode about Blink-182 and how there were so many copies. Right. And, and you couldn't tell whether or not it was Blink-182. Um, I, I haven't come across anybody trying to emulate 
You never will. The B-52s. No. <laughs> um, and, you know, I knew for almost all of the songs that you, you were bringing in for this two-part episode, there were only a couple that I had not heard before. I had not heard Debbie. I love it. Yeah, they're great. I love yeah. it. it. Yeah. I, I, I've always liked the B-52s, but I only know they're... I say hits with, you know, you can't see the quotation marks sure. with my fingers, you know, listening to the podcast. But Rock Lobster, my Rock own Lo- yeah. Idaho. Yeah, and then, of course. Song for Future Generations. Yeah. But, um, no, this, I mean, this is my favorite of the songs on your list for this episode. It's really? Just, yeah. I wow. love it. I just. I, I kind of took a chance on it. I wasn't sure. No, I really, If yeah. people would look at it, it's just kind of, uh, you know. No nope. generic B-, B fifty two song, but I like it. I like no, it a lot. I, I dig it. I thought it was fantastic. And as for Blondie, I mean, where to start, right? Um, I, I encourage everyone to take time to to go online and look back at photographs from the late seventies and early early eighties, right? Um, maybe a lot of people in our audience, depending on when you were born in Gen X, right? Um, we were born seventy two, seventy three, so we know that Deborah Harry was just a little bit before our time listening to music, right? But I remember my dad had uh, Auto American on, on vinyl, and I remember The Tide is High, which is such a fun song. Um, but if you look back at some of those, those photographs uh, from CBGB's Studio 54, hanging out with Andy Warhol, she was uh, more than just a lead singer of a new wave band. Hmm. She, she was an icon. She embodied it in her dress, her fashion, her demeanor, her attitude. Oh, yeah. Um, she was punk, new wave, but then also incorporated reggae and, and, and even rap. Even hip hop, uh, with oh, uh, rapture, rapture yeah. uh, into her music, and so um, kind of like the Clash, uh, considered punk, but then incorporated so many different elements. Right, the exact opposite of the Ramones. The Ramones stayed the same <laughs> the entire way through for the most part. Um, she and the band were willing to to venture out and try different styles. So it would make sense that a band like the B fifty twos. Um, which would have come out roughly at the same time as Deborah Harry, a little bit, little bit later, um, but would would want to write a tribute to her, as kind of paving the way for them. Yeah. Um, I will always love the B-52s. I know that they're not everyone's idea of greatness, um, but those people are just, they're wrong. They're, they're wrong. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't enjoy listening to them, to not recognize yeah. what they were able to do. There, there is a, uh, it's another band where there are a lot of haters. Um, I, I've seen on social media people, I can't count how many people have told me that they absolutely, like Love Shack, mm-hmm. you either love that song or you hate that song. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. I, I love it. But yeah, I, I've met so many people because that, that's a really, devi- like as a DJ, that one is really divisive because if I play it like at a wedding, it either fills the dance floor or it kills it. Either, well, either or. Well, what really, I think, turns some people off is Fred Snyder's uh, tracks. Um, he does a lot of talk singing. And, yeah. You know, he has his own thing. No one sounds like Fred Snyder either. But this track doesn't include Fred Snyder, as Rome did not. Rome didn't either, yeah. And I think maybe for some people, they're more palatable without Fred Snyder in there. I would agree. I mean, yeah. I, I, I like Fred Snyder, but yeah, I think, like Rome. Right. Rome, I think, just the... the the harmonies between the two, uh, you know, Kay Pearson and, um, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Cindy, Cindy, Cindy Wilson. Thank you. Um, Ricky Wilson's sister. Yeah. Because their harmonies on Rome, especially, I mean, it's, it almost doesn't even sound like a B-52 song. Right, right. It's, it's so, you yeah. know, um, near perfect. So, yep. So yeah, if you can't have fun listening to B-52s, then the problem is not on their end. I'll just say <laughs> that. <laughs> Agreed. 
All right. Well, that's that's all we have for um, side A yeah. of our name drop episode. Do you have any idea so far what we, we might want to call this one? I know we need to officially pick it next time. But. You know, I haven't even thought of it. We always forget to do that in the end. So I know. I'm, gl- I'm glad you're asking that at the end of side A. We should I, call it 5,000 Candles in the Wind. Maybe. Maybe we should. I, um, I don't know because most of the titles are artist-specific. I know. I know. Um, and I can't think of any... Or or we could go with another song like Say My Name. Well, that's true. Yeah. Just another song. We've done that before. We've done that. That would actually make sense. Say My Name. Say My Name. Yeah, let's oh, do it. All right. That works for me. There we go. We actually did it <laughs> early this time. <laughs> all right. Uh, anything else before we uh, sign off for this uh, half? Just uh, a reminder, please, uh, we love hearing from you. Uh, we would love if you would drop us an email or, or uh, you know, Give us a shout out on social media reviews. Uh, an iTunes review would be great. We we've been stuck at the same number now for for a couple months, and I'd love to see some some new reviews. Yeah, positive ones, please. Um, yeah, no, I, I can't think of anything else. I well, we want to talk about our sponsor. Just give mm-hmm. a shout out to Jay yeah. Callahan Painting, serving the greater Cleveland area. A uh, good friend, known her for a very long time, and she's. She does amazing work. So you can find her on Facebook, Jay Callahan Painting, for all of your painting needs. I think that's it. I, I have nothing else at the end of side A. All right. Well, that's all for this time. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, another mix of memories awaits next time. But for now, press pause, lift that needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time
driving real late, Delta 88. 45 on a side, then I'm through the state. No iPod shuffle, you know your fate. Mixtape. Compiled by a friend, amateur DJing. With no concern for what format's playing. It was more about what the songs were saying. Mixtape. Got some Merle Haggard and old George Jones Someone yelling in the background I thought I heard a phone But it's nice when you're all alone To have a mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine There's an accidental slice 